Well, we want to welcome all of our campuses again that are joining in from Somerset, Williamsburg, and today, Middlesboro, London. I need you to do me a big thing this morning and let Middlesboro know that we're so glad that they're online with us. Man, I love this series that we're in called Greatest Hits, and I love this idea that we're taking a hit song and we're meshing it up and putting it up against the story from the scripture. That's uh, it's a fun way to do some things. And for somebody like me, I, I love music. I love music. Now, I can't sing it very well. I am my own audience of one in the car, in the shower, that kind of place. Uh, I can sing with the group like you out there where nobody can hear me, but I am an audience of one. So, But I love listening to music. Listen to all kinds of music. I grew up in a very eclectic family when it came to music. And uh, our taste in music was all over the place. My parents were in their mid to late 30s when I was born, and I already had a sister that was uh, 15 and 13 years older than I am. So we start really in the 90s with me, and we go backwards, all right, a long way because of all that. And with that, we listen to a lot of, of different people, a lot of different groups, a lot of different singers. And so some of those might be, and I, I'm, I'm trying not to overwhelm you too much with all the greatness this morning, but like, Patsy Cline, uh, The Platters, uh, Neil Diamond. There's young people in here who have no clue who these people are. The Statler Brothers, Elvis, Frankie Sinatra, The Supremes, The Platters, to name a few. Uh, the Everly Brothers, The Oak Ridge Boys, Alabama. Now we get into the 80s, Culture Club. Yeah, some of you ladies I know are going to go pull out the long play records here later. Uh, you got Culture Club, you've got The Eagles, Toto, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Cyndi Lauper, and Rod Stewart, to name a few, and that's before we get to the 90s. And I was a product of the 90s, which I think is one of the greatest music decades ever. And here's why, and this is my only argument. You'll probably win the argument, but my argument is it's the decade when music changed a lot and there were so many genres that were constantly hitting in the top 100 from rock, R&B, hip hop, rap, grunge, pop, and country. And I love me some good 90s country. Past that, you can't, I don't listen to much modern country. But you name it, we listened to it, and we had it as a family. My family loved music. We had the long play records. We had the short play record. We had some cars that had the eight tracks in them. We had cassette players. I had the Walkmans. I had the skip-resistant Discman when those finally came out that never worked. Uh, those never worked. I don't care if they put skip-resistant on them all day long. It didn't work, especially when you drove an old Oldsmobile Supreme that had no suspension in it. Every bump uh, it was falling apart. And so nothing ever played consistently in my car. But we had that. And I had the old, for all you all that grew up in the 90s, I had the old big case logic CD holders that, you know, you got to work out just lifting those up and opening them. You know, and you talk about texting and driving today. Try sitting there driving with a big, big, uh, you know, volume of music that you're flipping through. Yeah, you shouldn't have been doing that either. But anyway, used to do that. But we, we loved music and we love classic music. As a matter of fact, when my kids get into the car today, I listen to a lot of 60s and 70s and 80s music. That's usually what's on in my, in my car. And today was a classic. Now this is a, country, a little bit of a country classic today with I Saw the Light, written and performed by one of the greats, right? And it's been covered by a lot of the other greats from people like Johnny Cash, the Judds, Alabama, Bill Anderson, Stephen Van Zandt, David Crowder, Merle Haggard, and a lot more. But today's song, I Saw the Light, was written by none other than the man himself, Hank Williams. Hank Williams Sr. And I love that song. And I love that song for a lot of reasons, but it's always a good song to sing, especially when it's one of the great songs that sets up to one of the greats of Scripture today. It's the life of a man who's very involved in the early church's rise and spread. And we're going to talk about this guy for all day today. And he's helping uh, 
do some negative things at the beginning of all this. And he's trying to stop the spread of Christianity throughout the known world. But he's been a stud most of his life. Uh, he seemed to be the best at whatever he did. Ever know anybody like that? They just kind of make you sick a little bit. They seem to be the best at whatever he did. And when this guy enters the picture, Jesus has already died on the cross. He's already had his resurrection. And he's kind of already, this, this historical part of the timeline is in the past. But it's still early to mid-30s A.D., and in Jerusalem, a new thing is happening. After the resurrection of Jesus, something brand new begins to happen. A new faith, a new religion springs up. Some would call it a cult. And some historians, even looking back, and even during the day, would call it a political faction. But it was growing in popularity, and it was growing with a lot of speed. A lot of speed. And Dr. Luke, one of our guys that contributes to the New Testament... Uh, he's going to tell us about this guy today. As a matter of fact, later in life, Luke is actually going to travel with this, this dude. And he knows firsthand. He knows the firsthand accounts. He knows exactly what this guy is all about. And Luke's going to introduce us today to the most prolific name in Judaism at the time of Christ and the beginning of the church in its fledgling beginnings. This guy's very intelligent. He studies under the best. The scripture tells us that. And he studied... Uh, to become a scholar and to know the Torah well. He was what he would call himself later, a Jew of all Jews, a Pharisee of all Pharisees. And let me ask you something like this. Have you ever known someone that when they were in the room uh, with you and other people, uh, they were the smartest person in the room? That's not me, by the way. I'm not going to make the claim this morning. The only claim I could probably make is I might be the biggest smart aleck in the room uh, when that happens. Uh, but have you ever been in a room when that happens? I have. I've been in a room in school uh, with some guys that were very intelligent, guys that could remember chapter, literally chapters and pages of books they read 20 years ago uh, in a debate you were having some 20 years after they read it. Uh, I've been in the room with some of those guys, and they're, they're impressive, and they're intimidating all at the same time. Well, this guy knows his stuff. He's very smart, and he's one of these guys. And, uh, and it was this guy that if you told his contemporaries that this guy one day is going to eventually be the one and an agent to help take this Christian cult and change the world, no one would believe you. You see, when we read about this guy, we kind of just go by it really fast. But in his day, no one would believe that he's going to do what he's going to do. And there's some of us in, in, that I've listened to over the years being in ministry, when you talk to people about where they come from, where they've been, uh, are they Christian, are they not? It, it's people that say, my past is too terrible, or you wouldn't believe where I came from. Well, this guy has one of those pasts as well. And this guy we're going to talk about today is none other than this, and, and some of you know it. It's Saul of Tarsus. We're going to talk about Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus is going to be uh, this huge, life-breathing, passionate kind of guy we're going to get to. But it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case here at the front. Saul is born in Cilicia, which is now uh, what we would know as southern Turkey. Uh, but he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Jew. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he's named after the tribe of Benjamins, what they, you know, historically they think is one of their greatest Israelite buddies, which was the first king of Israel, King Saul. And so he's named after him. And some of you uh, here today, you're watching online. Uh, maybe you're, you know, you've not even got out of the bed yet and you're watching. Uh, but some of us here today, we think maybe our lives are too crazy and our past is too crazy. Well, just hang on a minute. We're going to talk about Saul just for a little bit. Uh, he's jacked up. He's messed up. And there is no way... Uh, that some of you would say that Jesus would ever change you or want to change you. Well, if he wanted to change Saul, then he wants to change us all. And that's where I'm going to get to today. You, you know the hand you've been dealt, right? You know you. 
You, you know the person, the woman, the man you look at in the mirror. Not only do you know the hand you've been dealt in life, the family you come out of, and whatever else you want to talk about, you know your family history, your path that you've been on, you know what you believe. Some of you all are in here today, you're set on your politic, you're set on your future and where it's going. You have decided already on faith and religion, and you've got some beliefs that you're just going to hang on to and you're not going to let go of, and that's fine. Saul was the same way. You might even say you're a person whose past was so terrible that God would even look in your direction. I've heard people say that to me before. But can I tell you something today? The life of Saul is going to show us that things can and will change for the better if you let it. But no one could believe that this Saul one day is going to change some things up. I've got some family, and this is just a little testimony of mine today we, we, that I try to invite to church every now and then. And they use the old one-liner that you would hear from a lot of people. If I walk in that church building, that roof is going to fall down. Oh, no, it's not. If you're watching online, I know you've already escaped that. That's why you may have stayed home today because you're watching online so the roof won't fall down. But we would love to have you in the room one day. It's not going to cave in. Can I tell you that? The roof will not give in. And many probably thought this of Saul in his day. And maybe... Maybe just Saul thought the same thing of himself. We don't know. But Saul's trajectory, it will change. It did change. And his life would end different than it started. He would live a lot of his life, but it's going to end much different than it started. And Luke is going to tell us about Paul, that we'll eventually know as Paul. It's not flattering for Saul at the beginning. It's not flattering at all. He's trying to stomp out this new cult, and he's passionate about it. As a matter of fact, he's going to condone, instigate, and oversee a murder that we're going to be introduced to. And that's the murder of Stephen. And what we believe historically is the first Christian martyr. As a matter of fact, we, some accounts think that when Stephen was murdered, you know, they had a law in Jerusalem that you couldn't murder anybody, kill anybody inside the city walls. It was a Roman law. It was a Jewish law. And so they had to be outside of the walls for any of that to happen. Some believe that they did it as soon as they got him outside the walls, not even to the place where they would normally persecute people. That's how fast they wanted to take care of Stephen. But his crime... There's not really one. There's not one to mention. His only crime that we could maybe know of is that he was part of this cult that was known as the way. You see, there was too much momentum with this cult. And Stephen was probably doing too much talking about this Jesus who was different and changing things. And for the religious establishment, for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those in charge, when it didn't stop with Jesus... They had to do something about it because the spread was too quick and it made the establishment uncomfortable. Can I just tell you, a lot of times when things grow and it's good, it makes people in another place uncomfortable. It happens in the church world all the time. But the religious establishment wanted it crushed, wanted it stopped. They wanted it wiped out. They wanted it extinct. Why? So why Stephen? Seems like a good dude. Why? Because Stephen was a part of this cult and the cult had to be stopped and Stephen had to go. And the way followed a man, and they followed a man the Pharisees hated. They followed a Nazarene. They followed a Nazarene. And they followed a Nazarene, specifically the one that hung on the cross. And this was a problem for the religious establishment. But here's the thing. This new cult, this new religion, known as the way, it would not stop. And here's what's crazy. They would not fight. They would not swing a fist. They wouldn't pile drive anybody. They didn't even form a militia or an army. You know what they would go down doing, though? They would go down praying. 
and make a difference in this world. They would go down praying. It was a complete different switch. It was a complete different view of the Old Testament versus this new covenant thing that Jesus had put into play. The way which would become known as Christianity, it had to be stopped, and Saul wanted it stopped. He wanted to lead the charge. This is how passionate he is about it. And in Acts chapter 8, it says, on that day, it says, on that day, what day? The day that they took Stephen and stoned him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Why? Because if you can get the crowd going, it'll get going. This persecution broke out against Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And then Stephen was such a good dude, they make this little note in Acts. It says, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. They mourned deeply for him. Why? He had to be a likable guy. He had to be a difference maker. He had to be maybe the guy you turned to for advice, the guy that you leaned into, the guy whose life was probably so screwed up that it got changed by Christianity and this thing that Jesus was doing. But it said that these men would get together, they would bury him and mourn deeply for him, but then there's always buts. But, but Saul, here's what happens. He began to destroy the church. Now real quick, don't blow by that. For so many years, I've just blown by that. You read it and you go. You're done with it, you move on. But we need proper perspective. We don't need to read and move on. This Saul guy was scary. He was zealous and he was passionate. And if we read it and move on, we're gonna miss something that the ancient text doesn't tell us, but it's implied. What's implied? Well, common knowledge of the culture is implied. These guys are writing to people in their context, in their contemporary moment of time. It would be as common as this. If I stood up to you and let's say school's back in session. I know I shouldn't say that today because August is around the quarter and some of you teachers are going to shoot me later. But that's okay. School's about to start. And let's say football season has swung in. And I get up here and I say, guess what I did last night? It was Friday night and I went to the football game. Now immediately as soon as I tell you I went to the football game, do I need to describe everything that happened at the football game? You kind of have an idea of what happens at the football game. There was a game played on the field with some officials who occasionally would throw a yellow flag and blow a whistle. There was fans in the stands cheering. There was cheerleaders on the sideline cheering. There was a band playing every now and then and then marching on the field. And there was fans and there was smells of popcorn and hot dogs and other concessions. I didn't have to tell you all that. Well, well these guys aren't going to spend their time telling you all those details either. But for the, for the moment, everybody that read about this guy named Saul knew who he was and knew what was happening. It did not have to be described what was happening. And at this stoning of Stephen, let's just talk about a stoning for a minute. First of all, it's mob action. This is cancel culture for the first century. They're not only going to try to go after your social media, they're just going to go ahead and try to make your fingers quit working so you can't post anything. And so they're going to go after you, and it's mob action. And... Saul's going to be given permission to do it. He's going to be permission to get the crowd riled up and to take care of these things. The crowd would have to be stirred by someone, right? You get in a crowd, you stir it up. There's some rules in the Old Testament for when you stone someone. We're going to get to that in a minute. But you, to stone someone, there had to be witnesses, and those witnesses had to be the first to throw the stones. And Saul's going to provide the script for this to happen. He's going to provide the situation for it to happen in, and he's probably going to help point out some stones for him to pick up, I'm going to guess. But, but most of the time when the victim was stoned, guess what was at the end, what, what they were not? They were not dead. So a lot of times they would get a couple of people that would pick up the big stone and then they would walk over and they would crush the head. And in Israel when we were there, uh, when I was there earlier this year, 
Uh, we were at one of the places where they think the, the, the actual crucifixion took place, and there's a hill behind it. And one of the stories I heard was that th- this was a normal place of persecution, and what they would do sometimes is not only when the stoning happened, they would take them to the top of the hill, they would throw them down, and then throw stones on them from the top, and then go crush them. This is brutal. And people are gathering, and they're watching it, and it's mob action. And there's a guy there overseeing all of it and provoking it. His name's Saul. Now, it goes another step here in a minute. Imagine tonight, just for me. Imagine tonight you set your alarm clock. Monday's just around the corner. And you're going to bed tonight. And you're a follower of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Saul shows up at your house with a bunch of people. Some men and some women who are as zealous as he is. And they bust your door down. They not only drag you, but they drag your spouse. And they drag your kids out. And they throw you in prison, which is basically a hole in the ground or a cave. There's no running water. Probably some critters in there. Maybe some other people they threw down there. And your whole life's in jeopardy. And you just think maybe you're about to die. This is Saul. We run by this so fast, we don't even think about what all he's doing. Verse 3 kind of finishes like this. Going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women. He put them in prison. So you say, how will this Saul change? He is a zealot. He is a Jew of all Jews, a Pharisee of all Pharisees. How is this guy going to be the guy that one day is going to write the epic, iconic lines that are read at weddings all the time? How is this guy who's dragging people off in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night, and stoning people and provoking it, and he's so provoking it so much, he's going to get papers and he's going to travel around doing it. He's going to be the traveling killer. And yet one day he's going to write a, a... poem that goes love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not self-seeking and on and on but right now he's zealous and he's zealous for his faith and that's judaism he's zealous for the old covenant and here's the even more scary thing i think it's this saul thought he was doing the right thing have you ever seen history enough and watched it enough and seeing that religion sometimes gets it wrong. Saul was very religious. He was very skilled. He was very intelligent. He was very savvy. He was very witty. He knew the law and the Torah like the back of his hand. He could recite it. He could dig into it. And he knew what it was all about. He's not just some random psychotic dude. He believes what he's studied. Have you ever heard anyone misled by their religious understanding of something? Well, I have. And can I just be honest with you this morning? Uh, when you grow up in a church and you grow up in an environment, if you ever are at a place to where you feel like your hands are, are closed and you can say, well, I could never believe that, I could never do that, can I just tell you, you're, you're probably already decided on what you think faith and religion is. And when you do that, can I just tell you what you eventually do? You put up walls and you have no influence and you, you forget how to love people. But something happens for Saul, and he, he opens his hands and he opens his fists. But, I, but there's plenty of points in history where people have been misled, thinking they were justified by their acts. And here is my conclusion on Saul. It's really deep. You ready? Saul was a misled, religious zealot, a violent man. He was really, really, really scary, period. His reputation always preceded his arrival. And everyone knew Saul's reputation, and he knew what he was doing. And here's what's even crazier. Saul is commissioned by the high priest himself to do these things. You say, well, why would Saul think this? 
Why would he think this is even okay? Deuteronomy teaches us this. Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 10, it says this. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love, (laughs) I guess if you don't love her, it's okay. But if the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods. Gods of who? Gods of people around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other. Do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly do this. Put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death and then the hands of all the people. Stone them to death. Why? Because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And here's what we already know. Most of the people, a lot of the people that were involved in Judaism in the day of Jesus, they didn't even see the Messiah when he was standing in front of them. But this Saul, Jesus is going to save him. He's going to save him from doing the evil that he's doing. And if you talk to the contemporaries again of his day, they would say, how can this guy one day be responsible for 13 of 27 books of the New Testament, completing about 50% of the words in the New Testament? Saul is a man like a lot of us. And this is the good part. We have a but then kind of story. It says, but then something happened. Something happened for Saul. And this morning, I just want us to listen to it fresh and not rush through it. In Acts chapter 9, Luke's going to record these words. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed. And it flashed all around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. (laughs) I would too. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. But Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. So Saul's going to have a miraculous conversion experience, going on on one of his missionary journeys to kill Christians. He's got the letters in hand, and he's going to take off, and all of a sudden, Jesus is going to show up, and he's going to get in the middle of all of Saul's business and we don't get all the details and Saul doesn't write them all down but all throughout his writings you get little hints of everything that happened and something's going to change for Saul and he's going to go from a passionate religious zealot on the left side upholding the old covenant upholding the Torah upholding everything that he learned and he's going to put it completely to the side and he's going to operate completely different let me say that again he puts it all to the side and operates differently that is my conclusion of it because Saul is going to become Paul and when he becomes Paul things are going to change and when we read Acts 1 through 9 we're going to see this man named after King Saul have this interaction with the king on the road to Damascus and he's going to see this light and he's going to become a new man he's going to be changed and when Paul saw the light (laughs) we meet Paul for the first time this religious guy who's now going to become an incredible man for Jesus's mission throughout the world but then something happened 
Saul saw a light and everything changed, including his name. And the Apostle Paul, we teach and we preach on him all the time because of what he did. And when he met Jesus, the encounter changed history forever for Paul, for us, and for the world. Paul went to go see this man named Ananias, another Christian brother, a disciple. And when he got to Ananias, the Lord preceded the visit. Why? Why would we think the Lord would need to precede the visit? Because he has no history of being Paul yet. He has no history of doing good things. And in Acts chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, uh, this is what uh, is going to happen. Let me just throw it up here for you. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. It's already spread. It's already spread. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, this is my man, chosen. He's a chosen instrument. He's my man to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he should suffer for my name. And Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And not long after this, this is what's crazy. It doesn't take Paul a long time. He doesn't have to go to a new Bible study class. He doesn't have to go hang out at the latest new group. He, he gets with these disciples for a while, and then the Scripture teaches us that he starts preaching and reasoning with the Jews in Damascus. And here's what it says about them. They were astonished because they knew of Saul. They knew the man who was wreaking havoc on everybody. And then in Acts 9.22, this is what it says about him. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful. What? He was already powerful on the other side, but now he's on this side. He grew more and more powerful, and he baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving, this is what the Scripture tells us, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Because he had an interaction with him, and he met him, and he was changed forever, and he had the stories to tell, and soon he would have more stories to tell of other Gentile believers who are going to convert and find Christianity, and they're going to find faith, and they're going to find freshness, and they're going to find salvation. And the past will now be in the past for Saul. He is now Paul. In the moment, change Paul forever. There's no more killing and putting people in jail. As a matter of fact, they're all going to start coming after him now. And in Acts... Chapter 9, verse 26, this is what it says. It says, after he spent time in Damascus teaching, he decided to go to Jerusalem. So they had to get word back to Jerusalem because they were in the same boat. It says, but when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. He tried. But they were all afraid of him. I would be too. Stephen was still fresh on their mind. They weren't believing that he was a disciple. It's always good to have a friend, isn't it? Here he comes. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews and they tried to kill him. Why? Because they were zealous for the old, old ways as Saul was. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And Paul's going to go on a missionary journey, and he's going to begin to influence all those Gentiles that lived around this Jewish nation. How does that happen? It happens because of a, name, a man named Jesus. And in verse 31 of chapter 9, it says this, The church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace, and they were strengthened. This new church needed a little bit of momentum and they were strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, 
It did what? It increased in number. And I read this to you because if God can use a guy named Saul who was doing what he was doing, he becomes Paul and makes a difference in this world. How much more can he use all of us collectively to do what God has called us to do, which is to be the church that represents the same love that Paul is going to represent to the world? Paul would soon look over his shoulder from time to time looking for people trying to kill him, but he would preach. He would set up churches. He would write texts. He would have influence with other disciples and pastors. He was zealous for the Lord and the Gentiles coming to salvation. Here's how I know that. Because there's going to be a time where he goes back to Jerusalem. And when he goes back to Jerusalem, he's going to get in front of Peter. And he's going to get in front of James, Jesus' brother, who is leading the church in Jerusalem. And all the other ones. And there's a, a debate that has sprung up. And as you can imagine, there's Jews that have turned to Jesus, and, but yet they're trying to blend the old with the new, and Paul is going to have nothing to do with that. Why? Because he knew the old. <laughs> it was not acceptable. That's why the Messiah came, and when he met the Messiah, he saw exactly what the Old Testament was pointing towards, a day when we could have free faith, faith provided by grace, grace that is offered to you through Jesus. And soon they would have this debate, and Paul and Barnabas would get up and they would talk about all these Gentile salvations that were happening and all these churches that were happening. And James would listen. And he comes up with this conclusion and it changed the way that we think about church and engaging people. And James would say this in Acts 15 verse 19. It is my judgment. What? What judgment? We don't need to make these new converts, whether they're Gentiles or Jews, they don't have to be circumcised anymore. We, we don't need to do that. This is not a have-to anymore. There, there's no need for it. But it's my judgment, therefore, James gets up, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And I can just say amen to that. And as a church, we should never make it difficult for anybody turning to God. But yet we will sometimes. We'll make who they are, their past, their identity a thing. Why? It doesn't matter because in the end, salvation matters. That's what Paul became passionate about. He would become so passionate about seeing people change that he wasn't even going to let the guys who Jesus started the church with mess it up. And James is going to get up and make this profound statement. And the same Jesus that changed Paul can change you and you and you and me. Why did he need to come to help change something? You see, in Genesis, it tells us the story of how we screwed up and we caused a divide between our relationship with God. You see, in the garden, God wanted to be with Adam and Eve and all the people that he'd created. And even as that whole story is going down, God is still in the middle of it with them. They're the ones hiding from him. And then if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, when John's talking, there's going to be a verse written in there that said it's God's desire to be with his people. And Paul knows that he's got to do everything he can to let people have the same experience that he had. That there was a religion that was there to help point to a Messiah. And when it came up short, there was a Messiah that came and he met him. And it changed his life forever. And knowing who Paul was before, 
Listen to how he changes and how he talks. These are some verses, some of the last verses that we're gonna to read together. And it's just how he sees things. This guy that was one way completely turns on a dime and is another. And he's gonna set up a church in this place called Philippi. And then he's gonna write him a letter. And we're gonna to get to keep it in the New Testament. And here you get to hear a little bit of Paul's heart. He says, but whatever was, was to my profit, I now consider a loss. I consider it a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of what? Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And when I gain Christ, I can be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith and in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold with me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me and he's called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Something happened and Paul saw the light. Paul's gonna minister for roughly 25 years and that's gonna start somewhere around 33 or 34 AD. He's gonna become known historically as the apostle to the Gentiles. We know of what's recorded that he went on at least three missionary journeys. He planted at least 14 churches. They're probably planted churches and planted churches. He wrote at least 13 of the New Testament books. He mentored Christians. He was arrested at least three times. He was beaten, he was shipwrecked. He influenced statesmen and kings, but he also influenced commoners and those he would just meet in his travels. He was a Roman citizen who would appeal to Caesar once arrested and imprisoned in Caesarea. And one day he would be in Rome and he would die under the hand of Nero. He influenced Gentiles and Jews. He, his influence would help change the Roman world. His influence would impact the West in a big way. His influence has influenced you and me. Long after his death in 313 AD, there would be an emperor named Constantine. And in his edict to Milan, he would accept for the Romans for the first time Christianity as a faith and a religion. And 10 years after this, it would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. Paul one day would be on one of his travels and he would get a vision a dream and there was a man from Macedonia urging him to come over and Paul would go to Macedonia and he would lead someone to faith and it would be the first European convert to faith that we or one of the first that we know of why does that matter 
because we live in the West. It's influenced from Europe and the gospel leaves Israel and Jerusalem and it goes through guys like Paul and the church keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps spreading and it keeps doing its thing because there's people like you and there's people like me that we find a guy like Jesus just like Saul did. And then we have people we influence from our family and our friends and it's the thing he left the church to do was to make a difference in our world even though we come up short and we're full of humans that mess up all the time. But we are here to make a difference because who we are matters. Who we are matters. Who you are matters. There's some of you, you don't believe who you are matters. Can I tell you this morning, you matter. You know how I know you matter? Because there was a Nazarene who hung on a cross who saw you on your road and he knew you had to have compassion on you and he came to give you life so that you could live it to the fullest. And because you matter, your influence matters. You influence somebody, somebody's eyes are on you and how you treat and love people make a difference. Instead of pulling people out of homes and having them stoned, Paul starts wielding the gospel message and it's changing lives. The church goes down praying. It doesn't go down fighting like the world thinks. And it's still making a difference today, some 2,000 years later. Can I tell you what doesn't matter? Your past. Your past, your indiscretions, your sins, your shortcomings, your misunderstandings, your self-perception, your family history. Can I tell you what? In light of who Jesus is, they don't matter. Well, then you say, what matters? Here's the question. Here's what matters. Have you seen the light? John, one of Jesus' disciples, would pin a lot of words that Jesus would say, and here's what Jesus had to say. He says, again, Jesus spoke to all of them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. You see, Saul ran into Jesus and saw the light. John in chapter one, verse five would record Jesus' words and it said, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Nothing in your life can overcome the love that Jesus has for you. There's more grace and there's more love. You can outdo Jesus, he's for you. John 12 verse 46 says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should remain in darkness. And then there's one day, Paul's gonna be asked a question. In Acts chapter 16 verse 31, here's his answer. He asked, he's asked a question, how can we be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. You know why Paul writes that? Because you have influence. And then some of my favorite verses in all of scripture came from Paul to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians chapter two, verses eight. For we are God's, or for it is by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not by works, you don't have to do anything this morning. I know it's hard to believe, but you don't have to do anything. There's no penance needed. There's no make things right with somebody else first, that comes later. But right now it's just about you and Jesus. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And then verse nine, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do these good works. Paul met Jesus and began to tell people about the love in which he encountered 
Why? Because it's God prepared in advance for all of us to do. We are the church. If you are a born again believer, you have asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You are the church. It is not this building. It is not this structure. It is a gathering called the ecclesia. It is you and it is me. And we are here to do good works. To do what works? To work out our salvation. Now, Jesus took care of that. What good works? To do work for people so that when they look at our life and they know of our past, then they can think like people thought of Saul. Well, if Jesus can do that for from Saul, they can do it for me. If he could go from killer to evangelist, I'm in. There's hope for me. And then Paul would write these words in Romans chapter three. You are justified freely by his grace. Whose grace? Jesus' grace. Through the redemption that came by only him, Christ Jesus. And some of you here today, you say, I'm not Paul. Never seen the light. I've never been on a road. I've never had some miraculous thing like that happen. There's good news today. Hang on just a minute. There's good news today. My past is so terrible. Can I tell you? It doesn't matter. It's good news today. My, my religious background has ruined me. I've got excuses as far as the day is long. It doesn't matter. You don't understand. And here's the, here's the nastiness. Started all the way back in the garden. There's a thing called shame that wants to mess with you right now. And it's subtle. And he's subversive. And he's making you think all kinds of things right now about your past and who you are and, and who people have said you are. Shame's the nastiness that underlies all sin and all terrible things. It's the thing that, that is so silent that we just miss it. And right now when I'm talking, it's wanting to win right now. But I can tell you, that's the reason Jesus came so that the light can get in the darkness. And make the darkness flee. But you say, I'm ashamed of myself. Good news, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He said, my, my life really doesn't matter. You don't know where I've been. Good news is, it can all change. Well, I've never seen. Well, good news is you don't have to physically see. Can I tell you the good news on that? There was a time right after the resurrection, Jesus shows up to talk to his disciples in a room. One of his disciples is going to doubt him. He wants to see the scars. He wants to put his finger in his wounds. He wants to know that that is really Jesus because he knows the guy that died on the cross and knows that there's never been a man die on a cross and bring himself up from the grave. And he wants to see the scars and he wants to touch them. And Thomas is wanting to know if this is really the Jesus who we think he is. And then Jesus is going to speak and John's going to record these words. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have what? believed. This is the good news. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What Paul tells us a minute ago, all you got to do is believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you too can be saved. So my question for you today is simply this. Have you seen the light? Have you seen the light? Today is not about another church experience. It's not about another song to sing. It's not about something else to celebrate. Today is just about you and Jesus. This is a selfish day. This one moment, it's about you and Jesus. Because I know there's two people, two people here today. There's people who, who are wanting to see the light and grab onto it right now. We're going to give you an opportunity to do that. And there's another group of people here. You've seen the light and you've benched yourself. And you're not doing your good works to make a difference and influence others. I hope today you'll jump on board and begin to do that at work, at home, at school, at the marketplace, at the church.
Have you seen the light? Everybody can go from Saul to Paul. The question is, will you? And then I would say this, why not? Scripture tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that he is for you. Can I get you to bow your head and close your eyes for me just for a moment? Lord, this morning, we thank you so much for your grace. For it's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's you. It's you who stepped out of heaven so that we could have life and live it to the fullest. It's you who died on the cross. It's you who gave yourself so that we could have a relationship with you and with God our Father. And this morning, I think there's probably some people in here, they've been playing a religious game for far too long. And they need to tuck it away. And they need to start fresh today with asking you to be their Lord and Savior. Today, Lord, I ask for you to save them, whether they're watching online or at one of our churches. God, I pray that they would just open their hands and open their hearts and let it begin. Lord, today I pray is a day of salvation. And if that's you here today and you really have never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and you don't know him, it's as easy as a guy named Saul and it was easy for an eight-year-old little boy named Jack to find Jesus. All you gotta do is believe in him and you too can be saved. It's that easy. He's done all the work for you. Maybe you need to take that excuse list that's already in your head and you need to wad it up and kick it out because he is light and there is no room for darkness where there is light. And if that's you today, I want you to say just a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, save me. I believe in you. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name. What about you today? Was that you? Did you find Jesus as your Lord and Savior today? I hope you did. I hope you did. I hope you did because he's for you and not against you. And just like he took Saul and made him Paul, he can change the trajectory in the future of your life and your family's life because you saw the light.